What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Do you remember your very first car? Now, some of you, you may not have to remember too far along ago for that, but some of you, well, it seems like a lifetime ago when you got in that vehicle for the very first time, you experienced the freedom of driving down the road. Well, I wasn't living too flashy. My first car was a Crown Victoria. Oh, yeah, baby, that was a good one. Um, I actually didn't like it at first because it was my grandparents' car. And a, a high schooler, a 16, 17-year-old in high school, I mean, I, I, it really wasn't my idea to drive around my grandmother's car into school. I remember a few times I would, like, hide my face as I was driving into the parking lot. But I grew to love that car because it had nice seats, bigger than most vehicles. And also, that was in the time period, if you remember, in the early to mid-2000s, that that was the unmarked police car. The police officers used that vehicle. So I could zoom down the road however fast I wanted to. I could zoom up behind people and they would slow down and, and let me around them. It was nice. But you know, my father gave me a, a, a rule and a, and, a, and a standard to set. After I got my license, he said, the curfew is 11 p.m. And I um, don't remember what I was doing. I was out doing something. Who knows? But I pulled into the driveway and walked into the kitchen. It was 11.03 p.m. And I just knew I was going to slide right on in and tiptoe my way to my bedroom and I'd be A-OK. I mean, it was only three minutes and guess who was sitting in the kitchen? <laughs> Sergeant Ratliff was in the kitchen <laughs> holding out his hands and said, give me the keys. I said 11 p.m., not 11.03 p.m. At the time, I thought that was the craziest concept Three minutes, come on, grounded me for two weeks from driving. I had to ride the school bus for two more weeks. Wow. At the time, I thought it was just so grievous and foolish. Ah, oh, show some grace. Come on, sir. But looking back, that was one of the greatest lessons that was, I was ever learned as a teenager and as a young man. And as I reflect upon that scene in my own life, my father did that because he actually was showing his love for me. And in our passage today, what we realize is that a father or a mother who loves their son or daughter will actually display some level of discipline to them in the course of their life. And today, really, the, the message from verse 5 down to verse 13 is simply, God will discipline his children. That's really the thought today, the title of the message, that, that if you leave with literally anything, that's that, in a nutshell, what this text is relaying to us. That God is going to, at some point in time, as our, when we walk with him, he's going to discipline us. He's going to correct us. He's going to instruct us. He's going to tutor us, if you will, in our walk with him. But if I could elaborate on that thought... I think I like the title, it's catchy, God will discipline his children, but it's missing one simple aspect. 
It's the concept of love. So if I could elaborate on that sermon title to give you a key thought today, it would be this. If you have been disciplined by God, then you are loved by God. If you have been disciplined by God, then you are loved by God. Certainly every parent will have to devise their own method of disciplining their children. But what we will discover is the writer of Hebrews goes back into the Old Testament to quote a passage, actually three passages of scripture in correlation to this particular concept that, hey, if, if God, our heavenly father, loves us in such a way that he's going to correct us when we're wrong, he's going to instruct us in the way to live, he's going to discipline us or train us in the way we should go, then certainly we should do the same to our sons and daughters. And certainly we should allow God to do that in our life. Now, I want to just pause and say this. There are certain people in your life that God has allowed you, even though they may not be your biological children, to speak into and to invest in. And there are certain people that God has not allowed you to oversee in that way. And so as we come to this passage, we need to understand that there are boundaries set. That God is going to discipline those that he loves who've experienced the gracious power of the gospel. But God is not required to discipline those who are not his. And you as a parent, you are not required, although it might be helpful every now and then to call out the little boys and girls or the young people or some adult who's acting like a little boy or a girl, you know, in the house of God. There's times that we are called to do that. But as a general rule, you're not going to ask somebody else's children to stand in the corner. You're not going to get the belt out and spank a child who's not yours. Now, certainly there was a time in our culture where those things were issued in not just the household, but nonetheless, God will discipline his children. Sometimes it's a arm around the shoulder discipline, instruction. Then there's times where it's, all right, sit down, Here's what you're doing wrong, and now you need to do it right. Correction. As Charles Swindoll said, this passage gives the idea of positive instruction or negative correction, and I agree with that. But the question bears to be asked, why does God discipline his children? Of course, we need to understand that all that, that is about to be relayed here in this passage is stemming around the fact that, that if you are a child of God, then you are going to be disciplined by God because you've been loved by God and experienced the gracious gift of salvation. But, but why exactly is God going to discipline his children? Well, I want to draw your attention to verses 5 through 8 to share with you this concept of instructing them. In verses 9 through 11, to give this concept of correcting them. And then in verses 12 and 13, to give this idea of resurrecting them. So we're going to see three aspects of how God is going to lovingly discipline his children today from our passage. The first one comes from verses 5 through 8. Would you draw, would, would you be so kind to look at these verses with me today? The first thought is this, God will lovingly discipline his children to instruct them. That's the first reason. That's the first purpose of disciplinary actions by our Heavenly Father to us as His children and sons and daughters today. God will lovingly discipline His children to instruct them. Notice verse number 5. 
It is in verse 5 and 6 that we see this idea that we are called not to despise God's instructing discipline. Verse number five, in fact, in the original language here in the Greek language, it gives, you might study this, you might look into different translations or you might look into different commentaries and you'll see that, that some people say it's a statement and some people say it's a question. And the reality is in the Greek language, it could be interpreted either as a declarative statement or as a question. So you could read it and have you forgotten the exhortation which is spoken to you as children? Or you could read it and you have forgotten the exhortation which has been spoken to you as children. But nonetheless, this is a direct quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. In verses 5 and 6 here. In fact, I want to take you back to Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles there, would you be so kind to turn to Proverbs chapter 3 today? The text is, is on the screen there. So you could see it's Proverbs chapter 11, verse, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. What you will discover is, is this passage in Hebrews is, is a quotation of Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, but it is not an exact quotation because we believe our best understanding is the writer of Hebrews' main resource was not the Hebrew Old Testament, but a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that's why you'll see there's a slight difference. At one time, Israel had lost the idea as a whole. The whole concept of the Hebrew language was, was getting lost. Only certain people knew it. So they decided in a time period when Greek was the modern language and the, and, and the dominant language, they were going to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And so that's what they did. And so many of the New Testament writers would, would resort to that. Jesus would use that in his teachings and in his life. But Proverbs chapter 3, the Hebrew Bible says, My son, despise not the chastening. This is the disciplinary action, the tutorage, the instructing the correcting of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father the son in whom he delights. Now notice chapter 12 of Hebrews, the last part of verse 5 into verse 6. It says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Now check this one out. Here's, here's where the difference lies from the Hebrew Bible into the Septuagint and now into our English Bible. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and check it out now, and scourges every son whom he receives. So really the, the meat of the text is, is this. The point here is do not despise God's instructing discipline. But I want to just pause here and consider this idea of scourging. This is, by the way, the same exact term that John uses in description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it literally means it was a Jewish customary thing that they did to, to discipline people. They would take somebody and tie them on, on a pole and then they would begin to whip them and whip them and whip them and whip them and whip them in such a manner many times they were unable to walk away and unrecognizable. It's the same term that, 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 that John uses to describe Jesus, his sacrifice for you and me. And so, so in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, does this mean that God is going to put me on, on, a, on a whipping stand and whip me and whip me and whip me and whip me? It's a good question. I believe what this is implying is that at times, God's chastisement can be severe. 
We see that is, is highly exemplified in the Old Testament. The Jewish people repeatedly ran away from God and worshipped all these false deities. And so God at times would, would send them into captivity. At times he would judge them with plagues and do all sorts of things. And so there are times in a child of God's life when God's judgment will be kind, but also severe. And I will say that we see this in the New Testament as well. In the book of Acts, we see that God visited Ananias and Sapphira through the means of his judgment by death. So today, the reality is, is this is nothing new under the sun. That sometimes God's judgment, his chastisement is instructing in a way that's kind, but then sometimes it is a rebuke and severe. And that's why it's important. That when we do have sin in our life, that we confess it before God. Because if we allow it to harbor in too long, God's severe discipline may come to the forefront. In verse number 7, remember, verse 1 and 2 is this idea of running this marathon race as a Christian. How we need to endure. Jesus endured. And as we're enduring and running this race, we look to Jesus. And then we consider him through all things in verses 3 and 4. And then now we understand God will discipline his children. And so here he uses this word endurance again in verse 7. But in the context of not running the race. And not in the context of Jesus enduring all the ridicule of the unbelieving Jews and the scoffers of his day. But here he says you need to endure. The disciplinary actions, corrections, instructions of God. He says, if you endure them, God deals with you as with sons. So embrace God's instructing discipline. Today, I want you to visualize young Brian Ratliff in the kitchen with Sergeant Ratliff, a.k.a. my dad. And imagine if I decided after I got my license back and my keys back that I'm just going to, I'm going to show up again at 1103. Imagine what he would have done the next time. Oh, man. Oh, I would have been hanging up in the backyard with all the other deer he's killed. You know what I mean? <laughs> So there's times that, that sometimes when we receive the chastisement of God, we say, hey, I, I don't need any more of that. I, I'm going to refuse it. But no, no, actually, if we refuse it, then more will come and we need to embrace it. So I submit to you today that God is displaying his love for you and for me through his discipline in our life. Embrace it. Don't despise it. And then as we think about verse 8, I, I can't help but imagine this concept of love here. How love extends God's instructing discipline. You see, the King James uses this term that, that we don't often use it today in a positive context. In fact, the word bastard is used in a derogatory way and sometimes it's often viewed as a curse word. But the idea here, let me explain this to you. And in, in, in the Jewish world, you had this idea of, of being a son of a Jewish man. And you, as a son who receives the instruction of his father, you would be partakers of the inheritance. You would also be partakers in marrying another Jewish lady. And then you would be in, in a time of being buried in a Jewish cemetery. You would be a legitimate child. Well, here the idea is simply this. 
it's not really meaning all those things that I'm going to inherit my father's inherit, uh, you know, money or whatever. It's not meaning that I'm going to, well, I'm going to meet this lady. I'm going to get married. It's not meaning I'm going to, I'm going to get buried with all my family in the cemetery. Actually, what it's referring to here is that if you have somebody, whether it's your biological father or you had a guardian or somebody that stepped into your life who, who displayed some type of discipline to you, it's a reality that you are a son or a daughter in their eyes and they love you. In other words, this idea is God is displaying that we are his genuine sons and daughters because he is actually chastening us, disciplining us, and helping us be more like him. Can you imagine that farmer who plants his, his seeds? He tills the ground. He goes out. He puts the seeds in there. And as the seeds begin to sprout and begin to blossom and come up, he sees the weeds come into the garden as well. And he decides, well, I'm not going to go out there and I'm not going to pull the weeds out of the garden. Well, what happens is those weeds are going to rob the nutrients in the soil so that the produce cannot receive the proper nutrition. And in reality, the idea is, is, is a father or a mother who does not discipline their, their children is like a farmer allowing the weeds to creep into the garden to rob what was rightfully theirs. Today, God loves you by displaying his discipline to you. If you have been disciplined by God, then you are loved by God. Why does he do that to us? Well, he does it to instruct us. But secondly, may I draw your attention now to verse 9, 10, 11 and share with you. Secondly, God will lovingly discipline his children, not just to instruct them, but secondly, to correct them. God will lovingly discipline his children to correct them. There's this idea earlier in the text. It's this idea of instruction, of, of tutoring them. When I was in high school, I took Spanish. I took Spanish one and two. And I played baseball in my freshman year of high school and, and Spanish was my very last class, and, and in this particular time of the, the school calendar, um, the baseball season was there, and so I was constantly missing Spanish one, and so therefore, as a result, I didn't like to study anyway, and, and uh, I only had, I had to take it because I was required to take a foreign language, and so I was glad to get out of, out of Espanol class, you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no hablo Espanol. You know, whenever I would be asked to say something, I would say, yo no sé, and all that means is I don't know. <laughs> So anyways, um, there I am leaving class early and my teacher, for some reason, I don't think my mom went into any, any of these parent conferences or whatever they're called. I don't even know what they're called. I th the only time my mom went to one was when I happened to be in Spanish class. And my Spanish teacher said, listen, if Brian takes Spanish three, he will fail. And the only way he's going to pass this class is if he goes to tutoring. And so there I was, after school, sitting in class with a tutor, being corrected on my improper Spanish lingo. God at times will do the same for us. And in verse number nine, we see this idea that we need to reverence his correcting discipline. God's correcting discipline deserves reverence. Look at verse nine. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. In other words, yes, we need to respect our fathers and mothers who stepped into our life to correct us when we were wrong, to instruct us when we lost our way. And so here we, we give them honor. We do. 
But in this particular passage, we see that just as we give fathers and mothers that honor, we need to give God the same honor because he is a greater father than any earthly father or mother could be. He says, shall we not much rather be in subjection? In other words, shouldn't we submit underneath to the authority of the father of spirits and live? Now, I first read this passage and I said, father of spirits? What? Does this mean the father of all the ghosts running around? He's the father of Casper and the friendly ghost? Actually, this word comes from a Greek word, pneuma. Gives the idea of, of, of yes, a spirit, but also a soul. So the idea here is he's the father of all the human beings who have a soul. So he's our father. We should also reverence him. But then in verse 10, it says, For they verily for a few days chastened us. Speaking about our earthly fathers, our earthly parents. It says here that they did this for their own pleasure and purpose. Sometimes a coach will discipline his team so that they can go to the championship game and win. They have a hidden agenda. Sometime a, a father or a mother will discipline his children because he wants to have a better son or a daughter than old so-and-so living across the street. Sometimes parents or coaches or those in leadership will discipline those underneath them because they have ulterior motives in behind those disciplinary actions. But God's purpose is not filled with any of that other than God wants us to live more holy like him. And so it's for his own profit. He does it for our good and his glory that we may be partakers of his holiness. Today, God's correcting discipline not only deserves reverence, but it also demands holiness. God will discipline us at times, will convict us of our sin at times, so that we can confess it before him and live more like Jesus. God demands holiness from his children. So if he sees his child walking out of step and out of the way, he steps in to try to bring them back to the straight and narrow. Now I will say, sometimes when we get off the path, God will, will, will bring somebody who will just kind of nudge us back. But then there's times when we start to go this way, we're supposed to be this way. We start to go this way and we're running fast. Sometimes God will just knock us flat on our face and we have to crawl back on the path. But he does it to correct us. Then verse 11. Whew, man, there I was. 16-year-old young man thinking my father was the worst father in the world for not letting me drive for two weeks. I was grieved. I was going through mourning because I just got my license, man, and now it's all gone. Verse 11 says, No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's like we're mourning at a funeral home sometimes when we're going through this process of being disciplined and underneath the, tutor, the tutelage of somebody else. It's not joy in the moment, but then we look back and say, wow, wow. This verse actually reminds us of that saying, if you have children, you know what it's like. And if you are a child, you have no clue what it's like because your mom or dad might've said, hey, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. You don't understand that as a child, but when you have children, you realize that those disciplinary actions 
hurt you. And so here we see that, that sometimes this discipline, this chastening, it doesn't appear to be full of joy. But afterwards, notice what the text says. It says, afterwards, it does yield peaceable fruit of righteousness. This idea of righteousness, we are reminded that, that in, of, in of us, of ourselves, we are not righteous. We are actually unrighteous. And so God's correcting discipline declares righteousness. I love this because God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be part of his family and that all those who are part of his family will be declared righteous in him. We'll be justified as this word implies. And so today, if you are seeking justification by your sin in any other means than Jesus, you will be sore displeased in eternity. My friends, we urge you today, if you do not know Jesus, it is high time for you to get to know him. It is high time for you to bow your knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It is high time for you to lift up your voice to the the heavenly heavens and say, God, you are Lord. God, you are Savior. And I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life today. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so, as a songwriter once said. God will lovingly discipline his children to correct them. God will lovingly discipline his children to instruct them. But now, let me draw your attention to verses 12 and 13. It is in these two verses that we see a shifting is back, going back into verses 1 and 2. We see this runner running this marathon race of the Christian life. And then the writer of Hebrews takes a break of the concept of sports and athletics. And now in verses 12 and 13, he shifts his focus back to the athletical, the athletic scene, the Colosseum in the ancient world as those runners are running around the track. Now, it's interesting. Thirdly, I want to share this with you. How do we, why does God discipline his children? Well, thirdly, not just to instruct us and to correct us, but God will lovingly discipline his children to resurrect us. Now, no, I'm not saying he goes into the cemetery and calls us out of the grave. Although, when you are enduring trials, you will feel like you need to be resurrected. If you could just imagine, earlier in Hebrews 12, we see this runner running a race. I mean, maybe one of these days you'll develop the courage. I've always wanted to do it, just haven't done it yet. But, but maybe we'll do it together one day. We'll run the Blue Ridge Marathon, one of the toughest road marathons in the world. We'll run up Peakwood. We'll run up Mill Mountain. We'll run up Run Mountain. Doesn't that sound fun together? 26 miles of utter purgatory. Yes, yes. Oh, man. And so as we could assume, most of us, if we even attempted that, you know, we would, we would weary we would become t- we'd be weary, we'd become tired. And as you're running, I'm no expert in running, but what I've been told is that the first sign of, of becoming weary while you're running is your arms begin to drop. You know, when you're running, the, the motion of the arms is what helps you stride and to keep going. The first step in becoming fatigued is you start to lower those arms. Then as you're running, the second step that begins to show fatigue is not just your arms coming down, but your knees beginning to buckle. And you know what's interesting? I find that, that not much has changed in the last 2,000 years because Paul the Apostle is looking in the Colosseum of this athletic sport named running and a race. And he's, he sees the same thing we see today. In verse 12, he speaks about lift up your hands or your arms that hang down and the feeble knees. We think these people in the ancient world were so primitive in their understanding of the anatomy, but no, they were not. They were brilliant. And so Paul reminds us that in this particular verse, I think God's resurrecting discipline edifies his children. There are times when when 
when you might be running that race um, and, and somebody speaks into your life some edification and encouragement and, and, it, and it reminds you, oh, I've got to lift up my arms. I've got to keep my knees in check. I believe that's what's going on here, but it's interesting. The writer here has in his mind Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 3 where he uses this particular analogy in Isaiah's writing to tell the Israelites, hey, you're, you're weary, your arms are down, your knees are weak in this captivity, but look to God. And so here we see that God's resurrecting discipline can edify us when we feel like we're done and defeated. But then look at verse number 13. Verse 12 quotes Isaiah 35, 3, but verse 13 quotes Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Speaking about making the path straight for your feet. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. I think about God's resurrecting discipline strengthens his children. What happens when you're running a race and somebody on the sidelines or you're playing a sport and you're, you're weary, you're tired, somebody speaks into your life encouragement and it edifies you. And then you begin to rebuild momentum and it strengthens you. And that's what we are to do with each other, to edify each other. The last time I checked, the purpose of us gathering together is surely to worship Jesus, but then to build each other up in the faith. But the reality is, is just the, this is a reality check for even us right here. The reality check is we're so busy on the sidelines yelling at each other on why they're not doing it right or why they need to do it this way or why so-and-so is not doing a good enough job over here or this and that and the third. We've lost the focus that we're here to edify each other because that edification brings strength. And then we see this idea of being healed. Restoration. God's resurrecting discipline restores his children. It does. When God instructs us on how to run and corrects us when we're not running right, you know what it does? It brings confidence. It brings boldness. It brings courage. It brings, if you will, a resurrecting. On how we can best run the race that he's called us to run. Listen, discipline is a part of life and nothing great will ever come to pass outside of discipline and was such the case for the Miami Dolphins in the early 1970s. Some of you were alive in those times. You would remember this very well. In 1971, the Miami Dolphins became the AFC champions by blowing out the defeated Super Bowl champs, the Baltimore Colts, 21-0, advancing them to Super Bowl number six. They were filled with excitement. I mean, that locker room was electrifying. They were celebrating and, and, and partying and all those things that sometimes come with the nature of winning. However, the problem was, is they were just excited to go to the Super Bowl. Their opponents, the disciplined Dallas Cowboys, weren't excited about being there just in of itself. They were excited about winning the Super Bowl. And so in 1971, they did just that. They beat the Miami Dolphins 24-3, to an absolute blowout. That once victorious excitement that the Dolphins had once received had now turned to doom and gloom in the locker room. However, the legendary coach Dan Shula used this time of loss to pour gasoline on the fire to win. The 
players say that Shuler came in the locker room and kicked everybody out after the Super Bowl except the players and the coaches and delivered the unforgettable speech. He said something like this, I want every one of you to remember how you feel right now and we're going to carry this feeling all the way through next year. Game to game, every game is going to be treated as if it is the Super Bowl. With renewed drive, the Dolphins left that locker room. And some of them went back to their normal life outside of football, but Coach did not. Coach Shula assembled his team for the very first practice of the 1972 football season. And the first thing he did was he brought up the film of that previous Super Bowl. And as he walked through this Super Bowl, he, he critiqued every single player on every single play of the game. And by the time he was done, those players were infuriated. And Coach Shula looked at them and said, Now, you see how sick you feel? Imagine how you'll feel if you don't go back out there and redeem yourself this year. This loss was just as much my fault as it was your fault. You can't be world champions unless you win all three seasons. The regular season, the playoff season, and the Super Bowl. Before you walk out of this locker room, you've got to figure out how to get this done. And so you know the story. They went undefeated all the way through the regular season, undefeated all the way through the playoffs. And one week prior to the Super Bowl, Coach Shuler, Shula, excuse me, went to the field the Sunday before they were going to play that big game. And he got there at 12 o'clock noon and he watched the placement of the sun and the shadows on the field so that he would know exactly each moment of the evening and afternoon to better play, to better call plays, so that his wide receivers and his quarterbacks would not be blinded by the sun. That is discipline. And the Dolphins, the 92, excuse me, the 1972 Miami Dolphins are the only ones in 50 years since and ever in football history to remain undefeated. They're known as the best football team ever. But you know why they were? Because they were disciplined. Today, I say all that to just simply say this, that God wants me and you to be the greatest Christians ever. And the only way we'll ever be able to do that is through discipline. To allow the word of God to speak into our life so that when, when, when his word shines the light of truth upon our, our dark shadows, he, he highlights our weaknesses and our faults and our failures so that we can better correct them and better live more like Jesus. God will discipline his children. There are times he will do it privately and there are times he will do it publicly. And I urge you, don't be like Ananias and Sapphira who will harden their hearts to the word of God in such a way that God will be forced to do nothing else but to use you as a public example of those who did not receive the disciplinary correction and instruction of his word. If you have been disciplined by God, then you are loved 
by God. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.